First Timothy chapter two. Jesus was perceptively guarded. Early on in his ministry, and I've always found this verse fascinating, John chapter 2 verse 24 says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Anthropos, he knew all people, is the word there. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Do we? Do we really know what is in the heart of other people? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Father, bless us with your insight and your wisdom, with your understanding now as we open your word and seek to understand your purposes, your desires for us. Draw us ever nearer to Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Who or what determines gender? All political, religious, personal views aside, this is basic biology 101. The person does not choose the gender. The gender chooses the person. The fact that this statement might be at all controversial should tell you something about the sorrowful depth of the identity crisis that is in our culture, our country, and our world today. It's a world in which many people are even denying now the truth in science of what gender really is. All people are born with a pair of chromosomes. The male of our species have an X and a Y. The female have an X and an X. The reason is under a microscope, that's what they look like. They resemble an X and a Y, again for men, or an X and an X for women. So people can claim to feel differently. Uh, We can dress, we can act like the opposite sex. You can simulate the hormonal makeup of the other gender. Some even move flesh around surgically. 
But the one thing medical technology cannot do is change chromosomes. And that should tell us something. However, Facebook now has 58 gender options. 58. And I'm just going to read you the list. You can sign up as agender, androgyny, androgynous, bigender, cis, cisgender, cis-female, cis-male, cis-man, cis-woman, cisgender female, cisgender male, cisgender man, cisgender woman, female, female to male, FTM, gender fluid, gender non-conforming, gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, intersex, male, male to female, MTF, neither, New choice, non-binary, other, pan-gender, trans, trans with an asterisk beside it, trans-female, trans-asterisk-female, trans-male, trans-asterisk-male, trans-man, trans-asterisk-man, trans-person, trans-asterisk-person, trans-woman, trans-asterisk-woman, trans-feminine, transgender, transgender-female, transgender-male, transgender-man, transgender-person, transgender-woman, trans-masculine, transsexual, transsexual-female, transsexual-male, Transsexual man, transsexual person, transsexual woman, and finally, two-spirit. There are gender identity lists that go well into the hundreds. Many of which claim to be ongoing. Now, people actually look at these lists and are trying to find themselves. And I find that tragic. There's an awful lot of pain behind this game. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of woundedness with which people now approach this idea of, of gender in a deeply confused world. There's even now echosexual. Have you heard about this? A person who finds nature romantic, sensual, or sexy. A sexual identity in which one imagines the earth as their lover. This is a deeply, deeply confused world. With, with a deep amount of pain. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to the beginning and, and, and see how it all began? Genesis 1.27 God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So since the beginning, there have been just three groups. One overarching group and then two subgroups within the larger group. Not 58, not 158, not ongoing as many of the lists claim to be. If you look up gender lists, what you'll find is you'll see a list and then at the bottom it'll say ongoing. Which means people can continue to add to and try to figure out who or what they are. But this morning, just using basic Greek terminology, there are three groups that I want you to understand. Number one, the overarching group, Anthropos. Anthropos in the Greek, which means mankind, humanity, it's all people. All people. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. First time we see the word Anthropos in the New Testament, Jesus said, it is written, man, Anthropos, all people, shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So much hurt, so much pain would be avoided if people would just feed on the word that comes out of the mouth of God. 
So much would be set right in our hearts and in our culture and in our understanding if we would lean into the Word of God. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of Anthropos. All men, it reads, but it's not just men. Ladies, it's talking about men and women together. The entire group. Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, tells us He created them, male and female. He blessed them and named them, get this, He named them, male and female, Adam. Adam. So the name given to Adam, we have Adam and Eve, but the name Adam, uh, Adam, really speaks of all humanity. Everyone. We're told that they were named Adam in the day that they were created. Under that larger umbrella then of Adam in the Hebrew or Anthropos in the Greek come two subgroups of gender. And this has always been the way it is. And this is the truth behind all of the confusion or the truth before the confusion rather. And that is man and woman. Two genders. Anthropos and then Aner. Aner is man. Aner is the Greek word for man. We see it 156 times in the New Testament. Aner, when you see the word man. Now note this, it's, it's either Aner, man, or sometimes you see the word man and it's Anthropos, which means all people. And that's valuable to understand because there are times where God is, through His Spirit speaking, to guys. And then there are times when He's speaking to everybody. And I think it's wise for us to understand which is which. So 156 times we see the word oner translated man. 50 times the word oner is translated husband. Six times it's translated sir. And I think there's a dude in there somewhere, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Verse 8, you'll note this. There is a change in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when suddenly he's not saying anthropos anymore. But he says, therefore I want the men on air in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Now he's talking to the guys. So there's anthropos, there's on air, and there is... Gune. Not Guni. Gune. Gune is a respectful term for a woman. It might be translated lady. It wasn't like just calling out a woman. Hey, woman! No, it, 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 when Gune was used, it was a, an honorable way to refer to or to talk to a woman. We see in verse 11 of First Timothy 2 that a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So a woman there is Gune. When the wine ran out at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Mary came to Jesus asking for help. And in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now this is Jesus talking to his mother. And he doesn't say, Woman! (laughs) Gune, this is not my time, he says. And he's speaking to mom. So, Gune can be translated woman. 126 times is translated woman. 92 times is translated wife. So aner can be man or husband, gune can be woman or wife, but it's most often man and woman. Those are the three words. That's our outline for this morning. Anthropos, aner, gune. The outline for Second to our First Timothy chapter two. Now, Paul didn't set out in this chapter to clarify gender identity roles at Ephesus. 
That's important to understand. Nor is this letter a manual for church organization, although for centuries it has been taken that way. I have taken it that way all the way up until studying for this particular, teaching through this particular letter. It is much more than a church manual. Now, it's effective as a church manual. Please understand. It is useful for sound doctrine and understanding in the church and how we organize ourselves and what roles men and women play. It works very well for that. So I'm not saying it doesn't apply. That's the beauty of truth. Is truth is big and applies in all kinds of ways. But that's not the primary intent of the letter. What the Apostle is doing, remember, is he's building up two pastors specifically and their churches and or congregations as well, pastors Timothy and Titus. He is building them up to feed their flocks and to counter heresy. And the primary underlying purpose of these letters, the goal of our instruction is what? Love. First Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, as we study this and understand church doctrine in these things, as we look at and even consider the roles of men and women in these books, what we should come out with on the other side of these letters is love. We should sense and know, every one of us, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So part one of this study, we begin with Anthropos, all people. This is for everyone. Verse one, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all Anthropos, all men, all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is now the second of five times Paul uses the divine title God our Savior. We already saw it in the opening salvo in verse 1 where he refers to God our Savior and Christ our hope. So understand and remember that salvation is in the heart of God. As Paul is writing to Tim, as he's writing to Titus, salvation is at issue here, and and God is concerned for His people. Paul is concerned. The problem with heresy is not that you've got a countering way of teaching or someone opposed to a truth that's been brought. The problem with heresy is it can steal salvation. It can cause some people to be lost because they're not hearing the sound biblical truth that's intended by the Spirit of God. And so more than any other single issue, the first of all, and note that, he begins verse 1 saying, first of all. First of all, the concern of the letter is salvation. It is that people hear the truth of the gospel, that they might be saved. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul said, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. Big chief sinner man. I'm the chiefest of all sinners, he says. God, our Savior, desires all men, anthropos, to be saved. And by the way, this is to be the prime subject, I believe, of all our prayers. How much time do you spend praying for salvation? 
Not just your own, but others. How much time do you devote in your prayers to the issue of salvation? There are four different approaches to prayer that Paul mentions right here for the anthropos, for all people. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving. Entreaties is supplication. It's just, it's making requests. It's making your requests, your appeals known to God. Are your requests filled with prayers for salvation? Prayers for people who are lost. Prayers for people who are not committed to Jesus, don't know Jesus. Right now, don't have a hope in the world. How much of our prayers are focused on supplication, entreaties? Second word he uses is simply prayers. And it's the larger term, but it's communication both ways. I'm not, I don't have time to do this, but I was going through the Bible this last week looking at all the different people who prayed and how they prayed. And it's interesting because the prayers of Abraham, if you look at Abraham, he rarely prays to God. He mostly prays from God. That is, most of the conversations that Abraham had with God are God speaking and Abraham listening. That's good praying. So our prayers are not only making supplication requests to God, but our prayers are communication, two-way conversation with God, and that involves a lot more listening than sometimes we do. Praying for salvation means listening for salvation. It means listening when God taps you on the shoulder and says, this person needs you to tell them about me. Entreaties, prayers, petitions. Petitions is intercession, literally. And that is praying on behalf of others, standing in the gap, interceding for someone. And once again, if we're focused on salvation, how often are you interceding for someone specifically who right now is lost? And then finally, thanksgivings. And thanksgivings is essential because it recalls all prior answers to prayer. Thank you, Father, that so-and-so is now sitting here with me on Sunday morning. Thank you, Father, that, that she went into the water, that he lifted up his hands and received Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this. I would encourage you, as I have been encouraged this week once again, to wrap our prayers with the substance of salvation. To be a salvation-minded people looking across the world at Anthropos and praying for every person, all people, at all times, asking, communicating, interceding, and thanking God. Why? Verse 2, the latter half of the verse says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I looked out my window Friday morning standing there in the kitchen. It's one of my favorite places in the house, the kitchen. Not just because of the food. It's one of the most peaceful places for me because I stand at that kitchen window and I look out and and I think I've told you before that that Cheryl's got an entire menagerie of of, uh, attraction to animals out there. Things for birds to eat and things for squirrels to eat and things for deer to eat. And and I know someday Rod's going to walk up there and just blow one of those deer away. But I looked out the window... And the rain was falling again. I, call me crazy, but I missed the rain. The rain was gently falling. The squirrels were in the tree. They were eating nuts and corn out of the basket that was hanging there. And I just thought, ah, oh, fall. The autumn has finally arrived. But not in Houston. Not in the Caribbean. And not in Florida. Florida. 
point I'm making is that living a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity has nothing to do with being ignorant of the difficulty and struggle and heartache in the world. Leading a tranquil life doesn't mean that I hole up in my home and have a place of peace and quiet where people just leave me alone. And that is not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, let's pray for everyone so they leave us alone, man. Let's pray for our leaders that that they're distracted with other political things so that we can do our thing and just be tranquil and quiet and left to ourselves. No, this is top-down, bottom-up prayer that the gospel would reach all anthropos and that we might in turn do so by being a tranquil people. The word that is translated quiet there in in verse 2, quiet is Jesukios. Jesukios is peaceful. It's, it's a reverent calm as opposed to clamoring, combative, or contentious. It's someone who walks in peace. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men, anthropos, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All of these prayers and this walking in peaceful calm is for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of my kitchen window. Not for the sake of a mug of tea and a crackling fire on a cool fall night. That's not the tranquility he's talking about. He's talking about people who walk with calm confidence, quiet assurance, tranquility that is attractive to a world that is completely nuts. How can I have that? He is at such peace. She is so reserved. Nothing seems to rile her up. Nothing seems to get him down. What's the deal with that? We are praying for the salvation of the world. And in that prayer, we walk in peace. Because see, what happens is when I pray for someone else's salvation, I worry less about them because I know that God is in charge. I know that God, our Savior, is on it. And so I'm not freaking out. Oh no, they're not saved. Oh no, they're not going to find Jesus. No, I know, I understand through praying and through communication with God that He loves them more than I do. That He's more concerned even than I am. We're bringing in the big guns, my friends. The love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ so that we can then walk with peace and tranquility which in and of itself is attractive. See, right now, think about the condition of the world and what people are experiencing. Luke 21, verse 25, Jesus called it. There will be signs in sun, moon, and stars. We'll talk about some of that perhaps next week. And on the earth, dismay among the nations. Is there? Perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And people are perplexed and anxious and fearful and even Christians. I can't even tell you the number of emails I've been getting lately about, do you see what's happening? Is this going on? And and prophecies that are coming into me that the Lord's going to take us out tonight at 12 o'clock and everybody's just in this state of panic. Christians don't panic don't freak out yeah yeah but what if he comes tonight praise the lord 
But, but, but what, what if he doesn't come on Yom Teruah this year? Like everybody's predicting. Praise the Lord. What if it's ten years? Praise the Lord. What if it's tomorrow? Praise the Lord. I mean, tranquil, quiet, peaceful, calm. A reverent life where I am walking with Jesus. And yes, I am fully aware of the signs. And I am paying attention to what God is doing. But I am not freaking out. I just continue to pray. And in this world where people are, again, perplexed and fearful and anxious, will we approach them from the seat of judgment? Or will we approach them with a peaceful, comforting spirit? Will we point the finger at the 58 ginger identities in disgust and disdain? Or will we look and say, oh, folks need Jesus. We will never advance the gospel through being oppositional. We will never advance the gospel through protests or argumentations or shout outs or demonstrations. All that does to a lost world is turn them away. All angry gospel shouting does to a non-believer is make them not want to hear anymore. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And it is through quietness and trust. Repentance and rest. Isaiah 30 verse 15. That's where our salvation is. That's where our strength is found. And so Paul writes in Romans 12.18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Anthropos. Hebrews 12.14, Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Do you hear what he just said? If you walk sanctified, if you walk serene, if you walk in peace, people will see the Lord in that. But if you're anxious, or if you're terrified, or if you're just freaking out, and you're calling people down right and left, they're not going to see Jesus in that. They will not see the Lord. That's the point. It doesn't matter if they see you win the debate. Do nothing that would impede the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk peacefully, reasonably, calmly, that they might see Jesus. Too often, we Christians are on the defensive. And I am so guilty of this, it's not even funny. Rather than being compassionate, we're ready to fight. And don't you feel it in your heart? Something comes up in the news about some sin behavior that that is now accepted in our culture. Don't you find it rise up in your heart? Not now, not again. And you just want to say something, and so you get on Facebook. (laughs) Can I just lovingly request all of you who are on Facebook not to post stupidly? Because I have seen way too many stupid Christian posts. And I mean that as harshly as I can possibly say it. Posts by Christians that do nothing but rip people apart for not believing in Jesus. That is not going to save anybody. That is not going to draw people to the Lord. What are we thinking? I'll tell you what we're thinking. Our flesh is taking over. Our self-righteousness is welling up. And we say, I'm going to say this thing because I'm right and they're all wrong. And all they hear is another judgmental Christian. Stop it. 
We are here to compassionately, calmly share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you notice in these first few verses of chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, four times the use of the word all, pas in the Greek, has to do with salvation. If you look in verse 1, pray for all anthropos, all people. In verse 2, pray for all who are in authority. Yes, that means the Trump administration, for those of you who have a problem with that. And yes, that meant the Obama administration, for those of you who had a problem with that. Again, in verse 4, for all people are mentioned. And finally, note in verse 6, it tells us that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Do we pray that way? Do all our prayers, our entreaties, our petitions, our thanksgivings, do they all go the direction of all people? Are we quietly, peacefully, with calm assurance, speaking the good news to all? Pray. Pray quietly for salvation. And you will find it hard to be combative toward those who stand against you. It's really hard to be angry with someone you're praying for. By the way, that's a little hint in personal relationships. If you have a problem with somebody, start praying for them. You'll find your heart softened toward them in amazing ways. If you're upset with anything I say, or will say this morning, (laughs) pray for me before you shout at me. (laughs) Verse 5. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. Here's the key. Get this. Jesus is the man. The Anthropos. And that is huge. Jesus is the perfect human. It's interesting to me that we don't get to the word aner until verse 8. Here in verse 6, there's one mediator between God and men. God and Anthropos. And I would expect it to say, God and Anthropos, and the one mediator is the aner, Jesus. Because he's a man, like me. And that's not what it says. The Anthropos, Jesus. The perfect mediator, because he is the perfect human being. He's the perfect among all of us. He is the mediator. That word mediator is mesites. And it means one who stands in the middle. Isn't that great news? That means you don't. That means even if you pray in intercessory fashion, even if you stand in the gap, even if you pray for someone else, you are not the intermediator between them and God. Jesus is. Christ is. He's the go-between. He's the middleman. He's the one. And that word mesites also means one who intercedes to restore peace. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there if you'd like to. Hebrews chapter 9. And I need to go here because I want to beat Glenn to the punch. (laughs) He's teaching Hebrews in a small group. Just a little, little fun I like to have with Glenn. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Listen to this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Okay, understand, the high priest was the intermediary of the people of Israel. He was the go-between. 
He was the one who went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur every year annually and sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He was the one who did that. So that God would then pass over the people's sins yet another year, would, would let it ride until ultimately redemption would come through Jesus. So the high priest was the intermediator, but when, when Christ appeared... As high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, uh, sprinkled on, or sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living? God. Verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of forgiveness, a covenant of salvation. And Jesus is the perfect intermediator or intermediary, mediator. He's the go-between. Jesus is the perfect anthropos. Why? Because he serves both as high priest and as sacrifice. He's the only one who could. No other high priest. You could have taken Aaron, the first high priest, and sacrificed him on the altar and poured his human blood out inside the Holy of Holies and it would have only defiled the Holy of Holies. Choose the best of the best high priests throughout all Jewish history and their blood would only have defiled the Holy of Holies. But the blood of Jesus... Perfect. Jesus the man. Jesus the anthropos. He is the only one perfectly qualified for priestly intercession. And so he is our mediator. Remember that. Understand that. My Catholic uh, friends, no priest, no bishop, no cardinal, no pope can go between you and God the Father. Only Jesus. Because he's perfect. Paul explains that, another beautiful representation. We had the Gospel explained in verse 15 of chapter 1. We now have the Gospel explained again in verses 6 and 7, 5, 6 and 7 of of chapter 2. The Gospel of salvation. And then in verse 7, Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And I find that funny too, Rachel. She's giggling over there. Because he says... I'm an apostle. I'm a preacher. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. He might as well have written, if I'm lying, I'm dying. <laughs> Why does he say that? Why all of a sudden is, is Paul trying to defend himself? I think it's because of the false teachers who were at Ephesus. And I think he's saying something specific because we'll find out later in the letter that part of the problem of the heretics that were trying to teach other than what the gospel of grace was, there at Ephesus was they were asserting that the only true path to God was pseudo-Judaism. A hyper-spiritualized Judaism. And Paul says, note this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles. I'm not lying. I'm telling you. 
This is what God appointed me to do. And notice how he says, as a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. In other words, not in law. I think those false teachers were who were in chapter 1, verse 7, who were wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There were some people who wanted to say, we have the law, we understand Torah, the Mosaic law. And now that Christ has come, now we can explain it to you with spiritualized ideas, but we still have certain things we have to keep, and if you don't keep those, you're not going to make it. Ray was just telling me this morning that he was at a Jesus People reunion back in 99, was it? And John Corson was one of the speakers there, and he, and he said, John Corson said something that he hasn't ever forgotten. And he said, you know, we began with grace. Let's end with grace. He said something to the effect of we began with grace, but then we always have this tendency to go other directions. We start right, we begin well, and then we kind of head off. And he was calling out on all the people in the Calvary Chapel, the Jesus People movement, he was saying, let's end with grace. See, Paul was the apostle of the heart set free, the apostle of grace, who was sent to the Gentiles, though he was a Jew among Jews. Why? Because grace needed to be sent out. Grace was pervasive for all people, anthropos, Jew and Gentile. But there were those at Ephesus who would counter that. By the way, there's also internal evidence in this letter that there in Ephesus there were people who were denying marriage, and even promoting asexuality, that is gender androgyny. So the gender identity crisis of the United States is not a new thing. They were coming along and saying, hey, now that we're in Christ, now that we're spiritual beings, marriage is no longer a factor. And you're no longer male nor female, it doesn't really matter. They probably, possibly, were taking what Paul had written earlier to the Galatians, There is neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And they were making this kind of generic, asexualizing uh, teaching out there. Well, you're no longer a man or a woman if you're a follower of Jesus. Guess what? The chromosomes haven't changed. I am still a man who follows Jesus. Ladies, you're still women who follow Jesus. That doesn't change simply because you've given Him your life and your heart. We are waiting for the day when we will be glorified. But Paul is saying here, I am a Jew, I was sent to the Gentiles in faith and in truth, not with the law. So after all the all-encompassing offer of salvation for all humanity, through the perfect Anthropos, Jesus Christ, Paul now calls out Christians in the two subgroups of the larger group Anthropos, Aner and Gune, men and women. And that's what we come to as we get into verse 8. William Mounts, in his commentary, said this is the most discussed passage in the pastoral epistles today. Interpretations range from seeing Paul as a liberator and champion of women's rights to dismissing Paul as wrong and irrelevant in today's culture. But you know what? Paul is not the author here. Jesus is. Paul is not the issue. Christ is. God is. And if the goal of our instruction is love, then the deeper issue, and the one that God has grabbed hold of me with this week, 
The deeper issue here, even more than gender roles in the church, is the heart. The heart. Men. Think about the heart. On air. Part two. On air. Men. Verse eight. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Brothers, we get one verse. That's it. Now, you may have read through this passage before and said, that's not fair. How come the guys only have to deal with one and the the women get verses 9 through 15 and just get hammered? I kind of see it the opposite way. We only get one because we have one big problem. (laughs) There's one issue here that is confronting all men. Don't think, brothers, that we're getting off easy just because we slide through one verse and get on to the, the women verse later. No. Paul, by the Spirit, is calling us, calling men, Avner, to mature in an area in which many, if not most men, are least comfortable. How do you know that, Rick? Because when we have times of prayer, more women always show up than than men. Some guys do, and those who do are among the more mature of our brethren. But you have a prayer time, an evening of prayer, and the women will show up. You have opportunity to pray, and the women will pray, and they will pray long. And the men are uncomfortable and untrained and uncertain. Paul writes, I want the men in every place. In fact, he puts it forward. Here's what I want the men to do. Pray. I want them to pray in every place. What's every place? Well, some say, well, that's the church, every church meeting. No, I don't think it's limited to that. I want the men to pray in every place. That is publicly. That is privately. That is at home with your families. That is out walking by yourself. That's in the assembly of the worship. That's anytime Christians gather. That's wherever you are. I want you to pray in every place. Do you pray in the office? Do you pray in the mall while she's shopping? (laughs) Do you pray in every place? Lifting up holy hands. (laughs) Well, it's just weird. Lifting up holy hands implies honestly and openly and without shame. Are you ashamed to pray in front of people? Are you ashamed to be seen? Oh, they're going to think that I'm you know, one of those weird guys. And then he says, without wrath or dissension, which means peaceably, agreeably. As I said earlier, the Bible is full of praying men from Abraham's listening skills to Moses' boldness to David's vulnerability. But nobody, but nobody prayed more than the man's man, Jesus Christ. Luke 5.16 tells us Jesus Himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. So in every place, He would go out in the wilderness. Pray by Himself. Mark 1.35 tells us he would pray early in the morning. Luke 6 verses 12 through 13 tells us he prayed all night long. By the way, Luke 12, or Luke 6 verse 12, he prayed all night long. Why? Because he was about to choose the apostles. So when Jesus had some important thing to do, he didn't get more sleep, he got more prayer. He prayed publicly, John chapter 12. 
In front of everybody. And by the way, God thundered back, which is a great situation. He prayed in Gethsemane, Matthew 26. And even Jesus' last words were prayer. Luke 23.46, crying out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, we could add in John 19, He said, die and breathe His last. It is finished and breathe His last. But His last words were words of prayer. Now listen carefully to this. Guys, men, on air. You want to get saved? Men, do you want to get saved? Pray. And I'm not talking about eternity. I'm not talking about getting saved and becoming a Christian. Men, do you want to be saved? Pray. Prayer will save the gender. I'll come back to that thought. The Holy Spirit now has a few things to say to the second division of Anthropos, Gune, part 3, Gune, verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. By the way, I want isn't there. That's translator added. So it doesn't matter what Paul wants. This is what Paul is prescribing by the Spirit of the living God. So ladies, likewise, women adorn themselves in proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments. I know you're all looking to see whose hair is braided, who's wearing gold, and who's wearing pearls. (laughs) But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Note that. This is for women making a claim to godliness. For those who don't want to be considered godly, don't worry about it. It doesn't apply. But if you would be a godly woman, then Paul is speaking this to you. He starts out by saying, likewise, in verse 9, that is, with the same peaceful heart as he was calling out in men who are to be praying, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension, also, likewise, like that, women... Women, by means of good work, good works as is proper, making a claim to godliness. How do you present yourselves? Now, these first couple of verses here, often times kind of passed over because we want to get to the controversial stuff. Verses 9 and 10 deal with modesty. And well, they should. Not because all you women walking around are, are immodest people, but because we men are perverts. Because men tend to be very visual, far more than oftentimes women realize. They see everything. I'm so thankful that the chairs that we have now go all the way down in the back. Because in the barn we had those folding chairs that didn't, and with the low cut jeans, you wouldn't believe how many men were sweating through services. I know, you're all just shocked. I'm just telling you what's true here, man. But here's the thing. Culture. And this this just blows my mind. Because this, this whole teaching about modesty for women absolutely flies in the face of one of the worst devilish deceptions in our culture and in our age. How dare you tell a woman to be modest? What? Wouldn't you want that encouraged? You see, what our culture does is say, never objectify the female body. 
What's one of the best ways not to objectify the female body? Modesty. For a man to ask a woman to think about being modest is for a man to say, I respect you. I respect you too much to say, don't wear much. If I didn't respect you, I wouldn't talk about modesty with you. And Paul brings this issue up. But our culture says, don't objectify the female body, and it does exactly that. From fashion to celebrity to media. It is beyond hypocrisy. I had several names of famous women that I was going to point out that you would know exactly what I was talking about. How completely immodest. Women who stand up for women's rights and wear next to nothing. And I'm like, who's doing the objectification here? I agree. Don't objectify the female body. Well, how do you do that? Let's start with modesty. How about the fashion industry starting to make clothes that are more covering and more modest? And I'm not talking about going to burgas. I'm just saying, think about it. Paul's saying, think about it. And by the way, the Spirit doubles down on the issue of modesty for women. Not only does the Spirit speak through Paul here, but he speaks through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, where he writes, Your adornment must not be external. Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Now, he's not saying those things are inherently bad. He's saying, don't focus on that. Don't make, when you get up in the morning to go to church on a Sunday, don't think about how you're going to attract the attention of those who look at you. Think instead about the heart. How prepared is the heart? Alright, this is totally a side note, and I wasn't going to say this, but I got to say it. Is your heart prepared to come meet Jesus when we come together on Sundays? I I love the fellowship that goes on in our body. I love the fellowship that happens in the foyer. But it always breaks my heart. And I'm just being honest. It breaks my heart when worship has begun and Jesus is here to receive His people, but half of them are in the foyer laughing and, and chatting it up. I think we ought to be in here to meet Jesus. That's, that, that's first and foremost why we come. Now, now, leave here and chat it up all you want. And if you're out there in between services talking and second services begun, that's okay. You've already been with Him. Right? I, I just, I think we would never show up late for the beginning of the movie. We get there for the previews. I don't want to miss the previews. Why? We got our popcorn, we got our candy, got our Coke, and we're watching the previews going, yeah, man, I'm glad we got good seats. Do we have that same mentality on Sunday mornings? I, I see it in some, and not in others. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry again, I, I don't mean to offend, but hey, as long as we're offending, let's just go for it. <laughs> First Peter 3, 4 tells us, ladies, it ought to be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You realize He loves that. A calm, peaceful, serene, quiet person. God likes that. In fact, isn't it interesting that in our prayer lives usually He meets us in the quiet place and not in the clamor. Now, He'll meet you wherever you cry out to Him. And if you're in the middle of an earthquake and you're crying out to God for mercy and help, He'll hear you. But more often than not, He meets us in the place of peace. 
And ladies, that is the call. Who do you dress to impress? Is it God or is it man? Is it Jesus or some guy? And if it's the Lord, then the dressing happens in the heart, not on the flesh. This is the focus. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. I love the description here. It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and ladies as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. May the jewels, may the gold, may the decoration be that of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The focus of modesty. Well, back in Timothy. Verse 11. He then says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. He doesn't say a man cannot learn from a woman. He says, I don't have a woman teach a man. But that doesn't mean... I mean, what about Timothy? Guess where he learned all that he learned growing up? from his mother and his grandmother. So Paul is not saying women dare not teach a man. What he's saying is, here is the heart of a godly woman. She quietly receives instruction with entire submissiveness because she's chosen to, not because she's been forced, not because some jerk is lording it over her. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. What Paul is doing here is going straight to the feminine heart. We get so convoluted by all the issues of who can do what in the church, and we miss, I believe, the real issue, which is the heart of a woman. Ladies, he's speaking to you directly, to the deepest part of who you are, to your spirit. And I I finally decided as I was studying this week, I'm not going to draw a line in the pulpit. Wait, what are you saying, Rick? That you'll allow a woman to teach? No, I'm not going to draw a line in the pulpit this morning because that's not the point of the passage. I taught on this, a woman teaching and, and the relationship with men, exactly one year ago. September of last year, we were in 1 Corinthians 14. And I taught on it there, and we jumped ahead and already actually talked about this passage. And if you want to go back and think through that, feel free. It's online. You can listen to that. But two things to note about this. Number one, it should be obvious where we stand on roles of men and women here at the bridge. The example should be pretty clear. This is not a woman telling you these things. And I do believe that God has called men to a position when it comes to teaching the body, a position of that authority, that a man needs to do it. Oh, that's sexist. No, I'm just trying to do what God says. And it's not because, there's a second thing to know, that biblical male and female roles have nothing to do with men being more qualified or more articulate, or more eloquent, or more intelligent, or more spiritual. That's just ridiculous. And I'm not trying to appease you ladies with this. Guys, it's just the reality. You know with your women, you know with your wives, most of them are far smarter than you are. (laughs) Or at least equally. The things that I learned from Cheryl... I am a life changed by the Spirit of God speaking to me through the heart of my wife. 
We're even told, we'll get to this in chapter 3, that you can't be a shepherd in a church and not be married. Why? Because until you're married, there are things you don't know. (laughs) Many, many things. Gentlemen, we need the sensitivity, the spirituality, the intellect, the articulation. I don't even have to say that one. I mean, are women more articulate than men? But there's a vastly more important issue here. Look back at verse 2 again. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Who is the we? Who is he talking to there? Anthropos. So he's already told all of us to be quiet people. To be calm and peaceful people. And so now when he says... I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The word doesn't mean shut up. The word doesn't mean if she speaks a word in the assembled worship, it's anathema, it's heresy. No. What the word means is that she ought to be peaceful. Calm. Not demanding. Not lording it over her husband any more, by the way, than he should lord it over her. But willing to learn in complete submission. Quiet relates to everybody, and it is now the same word, by the way, Jesus, that he used earlier, he now uses for women. And in both cases, whether it's all of us or talking specifically to the Gune, it is not about who has the right to teach as much as who has the heart to receive biblical teaching. I believe it's more about reception. Here, Ladies, are you willing to receive the teaching of the Word of God? We, we jump in so quickly because we want to draw lines, we want to make sure we understand who does what. And, and you know, that's all. The roles are clear. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 17, I love this, says, The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Quietness is better. It's not a gag order, it's peace. It's not silence or suppression so much as submission. And ladies, not to men, but to God. Verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And immediately, again, controversy. Adam wasn't the one deceived. Ladies, that was your sex. That was your gender who mucked it up. Hey, Eve was deceived, yes, by the devil's bogus bait of a deeper spirituality. I think that's obvious. The serpent said, eat the fruit, and Genesis 3, 5, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make wise. Oh, that sounds good. See, that is the heart of a woman, and I've seen this over and over and over. A woman wants biblical truth. A woman wants that wisdom. A woman wants to know deeper spiritual things. A man just wants to watch the game. 
But she took its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Note this. Eve was lured. Adam was lame. I'm not just male bashing here. It is absolutely true. Eve took the bait, and Adam bombed. Adam bombed. See, that's a John Corsonism. I always like that one. Adam bombed out in the garden. What are you saying, Rick? She was deceived. He was straight up sinning. She was caught by the lie of the serpent. He knew exactly what he was doing and did it anyway. He rebelled, pure and simple. She hands him the fruit and he's like, all right. And he knew better. So when we read that the woman was deceived, it doesn't mean that you know, poor, poor, poor little female, poor little pathetic female, she just didn't know any better. We got to take care of her. No. She was caught in a trap of her own desire. Adam was just dumb. So who's the greater fool? My point is this. Listen, God knows the heart of the anthropos. God knows the heart of man. He knows what makes us tick in our gender, in our XY, in our maleness. He knows what we need, and more than anything else, men, we need to pray. We need to lift up holy hands in prayer. Not contending, not fighting, not wanting to duke it out, because that's what we want. The men prefer to duke it out rather than pray it out. The woman's tendency is more emotional, it is more spiritual. And so what does God do? He calls us all together. Men, lift up your holy hands, stop arguing, and just pray. Ladies, I love you too much not to talk about modesty. Not to talk about what it means to become more and more godly through the quiet, peaceful heart. I love you too much not to tell you, look, this is what happened. Eve was deceived. Adam just blatantly sinned. And what God does here at the end, He calls us all back to oneness. This is beautiful. We come full circle. He talks about the anthropos. Then he talks about Aner and Gune, and what he wants to do now is bring us right back to oneness, a, a people created in the image of God, male and female as he created us. Galatians 3.28 does say, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Jesus does is bring us back together. In perfect unity. And he says, you will grow best as I place you together. Men growing in spiritual tenderness. Women growing in godly submission. Because this is what our hearts need. The goal of our instruction, remember, is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What about verse 15, Rick? Oh yeah. Verse 15. I'm sorry, we're just out of time. (laughs) But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So we're right back to barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen with a Bible. (laughs) Not, Not even close. But let me be absolutely clear here. The word that is nicely translated preserved in verse 15 is sozo, saved. 
a woman will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, he's not talking about eternal salvation necessarily. He can't be. Because we already know from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you cannot understand verse 15 to mean that if a woman has kids and remains faithful, maybe she'll be saved too. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? Listen, there is a spiritual truth here, and there is a practical truth here. The spiritual truth is that all women are saved through childbearing, just like all men are saved through childbearing. What? A woman bore a child and continued with faith, love, sanctity, and self-restraint. Her name was Mary. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. And because Mary bore Jesus, all women can be saved. And there is a great spiritual truth. In fact, what's interesting to me is the word women in verse 15 is not there. That was added by translators. So if you're reading it through, it was not Adam who was deceived, verse 14, but the woman, that is Eve being deceived, fell into transgression, but will be preserved, will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Eve is saved because Mary bore Jesus. And so all women... And all men, through the bearing of the one child by the Virgin, Jesus Christ, God our Savior. And that is a spiritual truth that I believe is embedded here. But there's also a practical truth. Because ladies and men get this, this is not just eternal, but salvation is also internal. That is sozo, saved, preserved, also means made whole, healed, fulfilled. And with both sexes, both genders, we're talking about godly wholeness and Christ-like fulfillment. So how can a man be saved? How can a man be saved in and of himself? Be whole, be healed, be fulfilled. How can a man do that? Pray. Men, you want to come to the fullness of who God intended you to be? Pray. That's the deal. Prayer. Women. How can a, based on this, how can a woman be made whole? Care. Nurture. Ladies, you were made to nurture. You were made to care for. And the example he gives, yes, is raising children, but it is not limited to that. It is much broader than that. In fact, the focus is the last half of verse 15. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, with that peaceful spirit. A woman is made to care, and if you will care, you will find yourself saved, fulfilled, whole, in that attitude of caring, even as a man is saved and whole and fulfilled in that attitude of prayer. How do we save the sexes? In the current contentious gender crisis, there's only one way, and it's God's way. Will we listen to Him? Father, I pray we will. I pray rather than try and figure out, and I believe, Lord, Your Word is clear. 
about who is to teach and what circumstances and how that's all to be done. But Father, I pray that this morning we will, we will all be drawn to the heart of what You're saying to each of us. Father, will You help us men not to look over into verses 9-15 through 15 with judgment. But rather, Father, to look at verse 8 with conviction. And Father, will You help our sisters not to be wondering what the men think, but rather to be looking with their hearts at what You think, at what matters to You, at what really denotes godliness. And Father, I just pray and ask that You would make us a godly people. That we all would learn quietly. That we would have a peace that this clamoring world desperately needs. And may we have the heart of God our Savior. In Christ our hope I pray. Amen.